edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. You have made a grave mistake yet again in lending your time to me, and I promise to abuse it as we always do. Just a reminder, if you are one of the few people in New Hampshire politics not getting the New Hampshire Journal uh, email every day, our newsletter, you need to sign up, and you can find it at nhjournal.com. Also follow us, New Hamp Journal, uh, on Twitter, and of course, we're on Facebook as well. Uh, there's a terrific series of interesting, fascinating political people rolling through the New Hampshire Institute of Politics uh, with my buddy Neil Levesque, despite the fact that he's part Canadian-ish sounding, we still love him. And uh, last week, we, they had uh, Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor of Georgia. He's got a new book, GOP 2.0. Coming up is my old colleague from the Washington Examiner, correspondent author David Drucker. His book is called In Trump's Shadow. Drucker, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Michael. Thank you. Still, you still owe me twenty bucks. We'll talk about that after, after it's over. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. And congrats on the book, by the way. It just came out, and already some uh, some reviews are popping up. One of my favorites is from Kirkus. For those laying odds on 2024, Drucker delivers an opinionated, well reasoned, and often depressing scorecard. I'd be honest, Drucker. I've never found you a well reasoned, but I've often found you depressing. Yeah, well, you sound like my wife. <laughs> so tell us something well-reasoned about what you discovered looking at the GOP and Trump and something depressing. Well, you know, I appreciated the review from Kirkus. Whenever anybody likes your book, you don't argue with them and <laughs> just say, exactly, of course. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't set out to give a thumbs up or thumbs down on the future of the Republican Party. I did set out, unlike the many wonderful books on the Trump presidency, and I mean that sincerely, a lot of deeply reported books that are great books, but I set out to tell a forward-looking book about Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party and what the 2024 presidential primary could look like, which is the kind of thing that I hope people in New Hampshire are interested in. Uh, I've heard on occasion they are a, a rumor um, that hence, is the rumor yes right hence in trump's shadow the battle for 2024 and the future of the gop in a nutshell michael um i think what's important to understand is that i think donald trump represented in my reporting in in trump's shadow uh leads me to conclude that donald trump represented a generational break with the reagan era in the republican party so as as you and i were growing up um and learning how to bore people on podcasts every four years when we would cover presidential contests if there was an open republican primary or a competitive republican primary they'd all compete to be the next ronald reagan they'd all swear up and down that i'm the real ronald reagan and my opponent's the imposter and i think what we're going to see in 2024 is that all of them are going to be competing to be the next donald trump and it will differ depending on the candidate. Some will be overt and just say, I'm going to give you everything that Trump gave you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there is no bad and there is no ugly. And others will say that I'm going to give you the best of Trump without the worst of Trump. Um, and some will downplay uh, the Trump aspect of it, but it will be reflected, I think, in their approach to immigration policy and particularly trade policy, um, where even sort of doctrinaire Reagan conservatives like Ted Cruz have realized that on international trade, uh, the right position, the, the position you sort of need to hold in a Republican primary is one that's more reflective of Donald Trump's 
protectionism or, or at least quasi-protectionism. And so this was this was one of the biggest conclusions that I, I came to through reporting in Trump's shadow. The second one um, was what exactly are Republican primary voters looking for you know, beyond that? And this is where Trump has also had an, a really big impact and one that he's acutely aware of. When I interviewed him at Mar at Mar-a-Lago for in Trump's shadow, I asked him without leading him in any direction, what impact do you think you have? And he told me this story about the fact that even though Mitt Romney lost the, the presidency, the presidential race to Barack Obama in 2012, he just conceded. And why did he do that? And he tells me, I think I taught Republicans how to fight. Right. He could have said the Abraham Accords or the one point three trillion dollar tax overhaul or I started building a wall after years of nobody building a wall. I mean, you can think of myriad, you know, the judiciary with the three Supreme Court seats. You, there were myriad accomplishments, even if you hate the guy's guts. He accomplished things that were very important to Republican voters. But what did he tell me? He said, I taught them how to fight. He said they still don't fight hard enough, but I taught them how to fight. And so. When you talk to a Republican primary voter and you're trying to figure out what it is they want, you can't cross a Maginot line on abortion or gun rights um, or tax increases, although even even tax increases now are becoming a little bit less uh, of a line in the sand. But you better be able to communicate that you're a fighter, that you will take on anybody at all times. That is what Republican voters, many of them are going to be looking for. And then what I set out to do within Trump's shadow is just explain the different options for what the party could look like based on who might run in a primary and win a primary. Obviously, so let, let's talk run. about let's talk about st some of the stuff you've uh, you've already presented. And obviously, there'll be more when you're at uh, San Anselm College on Tuesday. And I hope people will go and and uh, and hear you speak. Um, the, the, I completely agree with you about the fighting part. I mean, that is the real deal. Uh, and particularly as you know, things drifted to the left. I think 25 years from now, someone's going to write a piece about what really happened when the Supreme Court declared same-sex marriage legal. Not because Americans were like, you know, you know, uh, gay bashers, homophobic, whatever, but just because people are like, wait, wait a minute, we're just going to do this? Like, no process? <laughs> could, could we have a conversation? You know, and 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 the fact is, I think it's safe to say that over five, ten years max, it would have become largely legal around the country anyway. But I think those kinds of things where people are going, wait a minute, if we don't fight these people, they're just going to do stuff, and then there's going to be no consideration for you know ten thousand years of human evolution or two hundred years of constitutional government. These crazies on, on the progressive left are just going to do stuff. We have to get someone to fight them, and so Trump was the bully to face their bully, to fight them to them. But my question is, is there, do you think, uh, going to a point where people start asking, what are we fighting for? That is policy specifics. And then the political value or lack thereof of fighting. I think it's interesting. There's a Democratic uh, uh, guy right now who's in the middle of a bunch of controversy on the left. Uh, I can't remember. I'm, I just spaced his name, but he, he just wrote a piece basically saying, hey, Democrats, popularism, do stuff people like. Stop talk. Stop talking about Latinx and, you know, mandated trans bathrooms. There's stuff people actually like. You should talk about it. And I sometimes listen to Trump supporters and it's almost like I don't even care what I'm fighting about. I just want to fight. I'm like, but, you know, you could fight for stuff that's popular, too. I don't know that Republicans are yet having that conversation in the base. Well, I. I 
I think that there is a policy evolution that is still underway. And that's why in the different contenders that I focused on in In Trump's Shadow, what I tried to do was give you examples of a hybrid Trump-Reagan Republican, a Trump Republican, uh, a Reagan Republican that's still hanging on, but with uh, Trump's uh, pugilistic uh, political sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what we're going to see excuse me, this is what we're going to see hashed out both in 2022 and in 2024. I think if you want to see a preview for the battle from a policy perspective, and it's, it's, it's a great question you raise, take a look at the Ohio Senate race, uh, where you have a collection of candidates all competing to swear that they're going to continue Trump's legacy, but in different ways. And there are policy disagreements between them as they're all claiming that they are either the true heir to Trump or the true heir to the future that Trump ushered in. Um, and so, for instance, I, I do a deep dive in in Trump's shadow on Marco Rubio, who walked away from the 2016 campaign, believing that Trump had really tapped into something. But there, as we know, other than on issues of trade and immigration, there wasn't a lot of policy meat on the bones uh, from Trump. Rubio has tried to create that, and he spent the last four or five years doing that. And you've seen him sometimes express opinions more common in Democratic circles on issues uh, related to labor and unions and stock buybacks, uh, things of that nature. Um, I talk about Tom Cotton. He's uh, another big focus in the book. He's He's been up in New Hampshire uh, more than once recently. You know, he um, for years was supportive of raising the minimum wage in Arkansas and recently signed on to a proposal to raise the minimum wage at the federal level. Now, th that's not one of those issues that necessarily animates a Republican base per se. But over right. the last 40 years in Republican politics, you were against raising the minimum wage because you believed in markets and growth and not uh, hampering businesses with undue uh, regulation. And and Tom Cotton is not doctrinaire in that regard. Right. You have somebody like Mike Pompeo, who is still pretty conventionally conservative, but obviously was very close with Trump and is tied into the Trump uh, foreign policy, which was somewhat of a break uh, from the, uh, the party of Reagan and definitely uh, from the Bush wing of the party. So um, you look at all of these different candidates and they're all trying to flesh out their version of what Trumpism and Republicanism means. And I think they're going to take cues from voters, right? You've seen the idea of being tougher on matters of international trade really take hold across the party because Republicans that even Republicans that don't believe in this know that there's a demand from voters such that it's a line they can't cross just as, look, I'm sure there are Republicans over the years that were not particularly pro-life, that were not particularly animated by, in fact, Donald Trump was not pro-life. He was pro-choice. But as he became a Republican who wanted to lead the Republican Party, he became a big champion of the life movement. He's the it, best, man. You know why he's the best? Policy. You know why he's the best? Because he didn't mean it. And fakers are always over the top. I, I just love it. Like sometimes interestingly, I've asked people to write pieces 
for uh, inside sources and we're a center-right news outlet. And I'll ask, but I'm, but we do a lot of journalists. We, we just hire plain old journalists. And what's hilarious is I can always tell the journalist who thinks they know what we want because they always write it like a bad Rush Limbaugh monologue. And I'm like, no, we really just want report. Trump's the same way. He doesn't really know what pro-lifers actually think so he just goes like completely stop them all, you know, and that's, that's, and, and, but and, in, and you know what, in, my evangelical parents down in South Carolina were more than happy to have it. Yeah. And, and by the way, in doing that, I think evangelicals were happy with the delivery. I think they would sure. rather have somebody like Trump in retrospect that tries too hard because he's not really exactly. one of them than somebody who has nothing to prove and therefore is more sensitive to other viewpoints, mm -hmm. you know, whether for Great political point. or other reasons. So we want to uh, limit this, this, this time, yep. time. You've got stuff going on instead of particularly pushing out your book in Trump's shadow, and you'll be at the St. Anselm at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. I want to ask one last thing about this popularism issue, which was David Shore. That was the guy's name. Um, and the issue of COVID. This is where I'm really lost on what the Republican Party, the base, the Trump voters, et cetera, what they're trying to do. I, I'm a very simple, as you know, because we work together, I'm a very simple man with a simple mind. So I look at the numbers. About 80% of regular voters, people who vote regularly, have gotten the vaccine. About There's no definitive number. No one has that, but if you look at the math, you, you know, voters tend to be more likely to get it. Regular voters tend to be even more likely to get it. So you're at around eight. So how many 80% issues are there? Not a lot. And yet a significant part of the Republican base seems determined to be perceived as anti-vax. A lot of them will say, no, I'm not anti-vax, I'm anti-mandate, which I completely understand. Governor Chris Sununu, when you're here in New Hampshire, he's been very articulate and he's very clear, love the vax, but I hate mandates. But a lot of people who talk about mandates very quickly start talking about, oh, by the way, the vaccine kills people. And did you know it came out of a Russian lab and is full of squid and whatever there are, you know, you always end up in that next lane, you know, away from just not liking mandates, they don't like vaccines. This is what I mean by, do, would they rather fight to win? Or is it just the fact that, yeah, sure, it's 80-20, and I'm proud to be in the 20, and screw the majority, and I'm, that's what I love about Trump. He didn't care if he was wrong. He fought anyway. I mean, there is an element, I think it's fair to say there's an element of that is that is there a future for that element? Is that what it's going to take to be a Republican nominee in this new Republican Party? I don't think you have to be that in the Republican Party. I do think that you probably have to oppose uh, government mandates. And this is a very interesting question, right? Because I, I haven't seen a big movement to uh, throw overboard measles vaccine mandates and all the other mandates that I had to take to get into public school that everybody's children has to take now to get into public and private school. Uh, th these are laws and, and mandates nobody's ever questioned. Um, I think part of this is because there's always an element of politics for an element of for a subset of voters that's about catharsis versus being effective. And some of this, I think, has to do with trying to prove that Trump was right and everybody else was wrong, that the pandemic wasn't real and that it was just made up. Uh, but look, I do think there's an element of this that that people feel very uncomfortable with the government telling them what to do. Now, I, look, I, I tend to look at this more like um, how many battles can I fight every day? And if a vaccine means that I can get back to work, go to a restaurant and live a normal life, like go to a grocery store and look at food myself, I, I think this is a good thing. I think. You can make the argument that it's the Trump administration that rushed through a vaccine. And thank God they did, because it allowed this country to begin to get back to normal, even though things aren't perfect. 
But this has become so wrapped up in politics that we've seen Republican governors try to block individual businesses from mandating masks and vaccines in their own place of business. This is not typically a Republican position. And I think this is just simply the human element in politics. And there's always an element of politics that is about faith and makes zero logical sense. Well, I want to, and I said we'll wrap up, but you just raised a good point, which is this shift on ideology. Because, you know, if you're a traditional libertarian leaning conservative like me, this is all easy. You know, do what you want, choose to do what you want, take your own risks, whatever. But there are a lot of people on what would you might call the Trump wing or the populist wing, whatever, who say no. We can't let businesses make these decisions. We need to do what the Democrats do and tell them what to do. Just tell them what to do, what we want for a change. And they really mean that. And I think that's what you're talking about, this evolution of government activism in the name of populism or conservatism or yes. republicanism. And, and this is, a, I think, think, an excellent example. I have for so-called right-wingers telling me I want the government to break the back of corporations. Corporations are coming after me, the little man. I should be able to go to work and screw my boss. Yeah. And I think that's because so much of politics today is cultural um, and not really and not white paper issue based. Right. So we're having these arguments about vaccines and um, um, movies and big tech and big this and big that. And it, it's really, a, you know, for people that feel threatened or for people that feel like they're being treated unfairly or for people that feel like there's big brother out there. And we've seen this go back and forth between the right and the left. And right now, you know, it's Democrats defending an individual business's right to, to implement a regulation. And it's Republicans that are attacking it. Not everywhere. Look, I interviewed Chris Christie uh, for the Texas Tribune Festival. And he told me he didn't think it was very, con he said, as if I were still governor of New Jersey, I would not implement a statewide vaccine mandate or a statewide mask mandate for businesses. But he said, I don't think it would be very conservative or Republican of me to tell counties and townships and cities that they can't do it themselves. We value local control, don't we? And so, you know, you're seeing this argument play out, <laughs> yeah. but it's because right now, you know, populism is ascendant on the right. And, you know, the more sort of libertarian leaning or, or, or Reagan era republicanism is is sort of playing second fiddle at the right. moment. Um, and, and these are things that are going to play out in 2024. And, and I tried to to write a book that would sort of give people a clue right. as to how Trump impacted things and where the party was headed because. Of and that. of course, the problem is nobody's on the side of leaving those businesses alone because Joe Biden wants OSHA to force them to do it. And um, oh, yeah, and right. the populists nobody, want nobody the governor to stop them hands. from doing it. And no one can just say, just leave me the hell alone. So you've heard it. Uh, you've heard him attack. Uh, big tech, you've heard him attack big government, but he is a stooge of big publishing. David Drucker with his book out in Trump's shadow. He will be at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. Thanks so much for joining us here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening. Oh,